The Power Mac, what's it going to bring? The beginning of a new era in personal computing. The Rambo of personal computing. Or maybe it's the Ferrari. Maybe it's a Rambo in a Ferrari. The truth is, I don't know. But I know one thing. I can hardly wait. Folklore Radio, read by Derek. Macworld Magazine, May and June 1994. The Iconoclast by Stephen Levy. The Road to Power Macintosh. The Story Behind Apple's Big Risk. In 1990, Jack McHenry confronted the question that every manager of a computer design team faces when a project is completed. What next? In the dizzying world of personal computers, particularly at Apple, where some Macintosh models last about as long as a QuickTime video, this is a perpetually vexing conundrum. Any engineer's dream is to develop a machine that represents the company's flagship, a computer that embodies not only marketplace realities, but also the company's future. At Apple, many designers had that dream, leading to an implicit competition that demanded a combination of technical knowledge, soothsaying, corporate politicking, and samurai confidence. Four years ago, McHenry's team was coming off a win. The Macintosh 2FX, considered at the time a paragon of blazing speed and breathtaking power. This costly beast was one of the first salvos in a fusillade of about a zillion new Macintoshes that came out over the next few years, an ascending spiral of more powerful models based first on the Motorola 68030, then on the 68040. But some motherboard visionaries at Apple understood that this entire family of processors, beginning with the 68000 that was chosen for the original Mac, was essentially a dead end. Andy Bechtolsheim, chief hardware designer and co-founder of Sun Microsystems. But it was also clear that Motorola wasn't moving that quickly along. I mean, they had one design team, they had good people, but they just didn't have quite enough resources to do it more quickly. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, they were stuck on this, let's fix the missing memory instruction, and that takes two years. And then they're going to, you know, up it to 10, 12 megahertz. I mean, they, they, they moved too slowly to Im improve the performance. They were sort of not on a more slow kind of curve of improvement. In order to process computation-hungry stuff like multimedia, telephone, and voice recognition applications, Apple would need a more powerful chip. A few people thought the answer was to switch to something that used an exotic technology called RISC. RISC is an acronym for Reduced Instruction Set Computer. Regular microprocessors, like those in the 68K family, have rich instruction sets that execute many commands. The inventors of RISC figured out that by cutting the instructions to a very few, you could have a faster processor. Sure, in order to perform the instructions that are no longer hardwired onto the chip, you have to run many more instructions using the few you have. But when the smoke clears, things come out faster with RISC. Here at Stanford University in California, John Hennessy has produced a chip with a reduced set of instructions, a RISC chip. 
the basic idea behind risk is to try and increase a computer performance by trying to concentrate on the most frequently executed instructions and to increase the performance by making those instructions run faster. Each instruction must justify its existence by actually showing how it contributes to, to improved performance. The instructions that tend to get dropped are more complicated ones. Uh, for example, the VAX has an instruction which does polynomial evaluation. Uh, that's an instruction which is so infrequently used that its benefits are, are virtually non-existent. This is actually brings up one of the sort of fallacies about risk. People say, well, you take this machine and you uh, take out something, so therefore I've, I've really lost something. The analogy I like to use is one of uh, an athlete who's running a race. Clearly, if he reduces and loses some weight, you haven't lost something, you've actually gained something. And what we try and do in designing risk machines is to use the excess silicon area that we've recovered We've actually gotten back. It's no longer wasted for something that will really improve performance. Still, in 1990, RISC was a radical departure, a promising technology used in very expensive workstations. In 1990, Apple already had a group working on RISC technology, the Jaguar Group. Jaguar got its start from a project that put a RISC chip on a board that fit into a 2FX the Apple 824GC graphics card, and now its members were charged with designing a powerful risk-based computer. Gary Davidian speaking to the Computer History Museum. So we started looking at the AMD 29000. The thought was that the 29000 would be a graphics accelerator and also a toolbox accelerator. The hardware guys were looking at that and they were saying, this is really a pain. <laughs> is there some way we can get rid of the 68,000? <laughs> <Yeah>. So, <laughs> although we were still, you know, having discussions with Motorola. <laughs> so we started thinking about it, and it was, could we emulate the 68,000 on the, the 29,000? The Jaguarians had decided that any Apple RISC computer would have to break cleanly from all previous Macintoshes. In their thinking, the first thing you would do upon switching from the Mac to a new RISC machine was to feed all your software to a neighborhood goat, who would munch on it happily since it was garbage. Because this machine would be powerful enough to do all sorts of heretofore impossible things, several technology groups at Apple allied themselves with Jaguar. Groups working on projects like interfaces to telephones, audiovisual capabilities, and the voice recognition system called PlainTalk. By 1990, there were between 10 and 40 people working on Jaguar-related projects. McHenry's team, however, approached risk from a different angle. On a group ski trip in March 1991, they made a decision to develop a risk machine that would be a direct successor to the Macintosh family and would run the current software base. Considering McHenry's attachment to the Mac, this wasn't surprising. In 1984, McHenry had been an experienced 36-year-old Silicon Valley hardware gypsy who was blown away by the introduction of the Mac. From then on, my goal was to go to Apple and design Macintoshes, he says, and that year he began doing just that. Cognac McHenry's new project was codenamed Cognac, 
in honor of a risk pioneer with a surname identical to a particular after-dinner liqueur. The key people on his team included 2FX project holdovers Robert Hollier and Jonathan Fitch. The latter was also an old apple hand, having worked on the Lisa. Cognac and Jaguar, of course, knew of each other's existence. They worked in different buildings, but each kept up on the progress of the other, and each thought the other team was hopelessly misguided. We thought Jaguar was a second step, not a first step to risk, says McHenry with some tact. Others are more frank. We thought their approach was impossible, recalls John Fitch. We view Jaguar, says McHenry, as the evil empire. But the tension between the two risk teams was small beer compared with the disquiet that these units sowed within Apple in general. It's easy to see why. There were literally thousands of people within Apple devoted to extending the current operating system, the world of the 68K, into the next decade and beyond. If either of these two small groups succeeded in moving Apple into the world of risk, the company would see an upheaval not experienced since the Macintosh overthrew the Apple II. Though little publicized, this drama was the real subplot of Apple's development efforts in the early 1990s. Risky Business The main problem with switching to risk, of course, lay in the deep investment Macintosh users had in their software. One would expect the vendors of high-volume applications like Microsoft Word or Aldous PageMaker to eventually port their wares over to any new Apple platform. But a lot of Mac software falls into the realm of folkware, quirky applications that may not have won a large audience, but help to constitute the overall library that makes the Macintosh so valuable. At best, risk versions of those applications would be slow in coming. At worst, they might never be attempted. If it couldn't run existing software, a risk-based computer would be of limited value to Apple's current customers. While running Macintosh software was not a priority for the Jaguar team, the Cognac team had to figure out how to build a computer that could run both existing programs and the new generation of applications that would be created specifically for the RISC computer. This meant choosing between two alternatives, either using the RISC chip to emulate a previously existing Macintosh, or shipping a two-in-one computer, a RISC machine with a 68K Macintosh chipset alongside. Emulation is no picnic. It often slows a machine down, and who wants to buy an expensive computer that makes your existing software look like it's working underwater? The history of dual-processor machines is littered with failures. No matter how elegantly you package them, they wind up as costly compromises. Dual-processors are a nightmare, says John Fitch, so we were looking for a way not to include a 68K chip in the machine. The breakthrough came in late 1991 when the Cognac team discovered what became known as the 90-10 rule. As McHenry explains, it turned out that in a typical Mac application, 90% of the computing time is spent on 10% of the code. This meant that it was theoretically possible to do a very fast emulator. It might be possible to actually produce a machine with only the RISC processor. 
We could leave out the 68K, says McHenry. Emulating Mac It was the Jaguar team that wound up shopping for the chip manufacturer to provide Apple's risk processor. Right after the FX shipped, I think it was probably around June, was when we started having discussions about what to do next. So we started looking at the AMD 29000 at that time. But we also looked at other risk processors just, you know, just to see. And we looked at the MIPS processor, Spark. It was seeming that despite whatever we wanted to choose, there was sort of this corporate pressure that um, if it's going to be a risk processor, it's going to be Motorola and it's going to be the 88000 because that's what Jaguar is doing. Was, so, was that because the Apple wanted to just continue to maintain that relationship with Motorola? I think so. So, you know, we were looking at all these different processors. I was coding up partial emulators for each one of these processors for, you know, limited number of instructions just to see what performance might be like and if there were any major showstoppers. Um, there was one for MIPS. They divided their address space between a user and a kernel mode, even at the user level. So that would have that would have been problems with us trying to map in the new bus space, trying to keep the, the memory map that was used in the current Macintosh. We were leaning towards the MD29000, but we got pressured into looking at the 88000. Was the AMD a better architecture, in your opinion? It's hard to say. After a whirlwind tour of every potential risk provider, including MIPS and even IBM, the Jaguar team wound up making a decision. It would use Motorola chips. Apple executives decided the Cognac team would use the same chips. The rejected suitors were disappointed, since an Apple adoption of a company's risk chip would mean a minimum tenfold increase in sales. Both teams continued working independently. Cognac's hardware design progressed, and in late 1990, the team reached what's called gray screen, the point at which a prototype, its circuitry working, lights up a monitor. Still, the team knew that its efforts would be wasted if the Macintosh emulation was sluggish. If there was a speed penalty in buying this over the 68K Mac, we couldn't do it, says John Fitch. The man charged with producing the Cognac emulation scheme was an engineer named Gary Davidian. Before coming to Apple and working on various ROM toolboxes, he had been an experienced microcoder, a person who writes directly to the high-speed instruction sets on microprocessors. Richard Larry, microcoder extraordinaire from Digital Equipment Corporation, explaining exactly what microcode is. So software is what the machine presents to the world, okay? Microcode is just an internal technique. Every bit or bit field in the microcode has some direct control of switching some mucks right. or, uh, or turning on some gate or uh, providing uh, controls to an alu or something like that. When Davidian joined the Cognac team, the Motorola decision had not been made, so every couple of weeks he was writing a new emulator, depending on the risk chip du jour. It wasn't easy making those chips pretend they were 68,000s, but as he progressed, he learned many tricks. By the time the group settled on Motorola in 1991, Davidian was ready to apply all his knowledge. By mid-year, he had an emulator that ran inside a Macintosh LC box using a RISC chip.
Look, Ma, no 68,000. The Riskified LC, which they called RLC, accepted off-the-shelf Macintosh software and ran it at speeds comparable to a Macintosh 2. The RLC worked great. It blew away the company, says McHenry. It emulated almost everything that ran on the Mac, not only the new things, but some of the earlier software as well. One particularly triumphant moment was the Cognac team's demonstration to the Jaguar team in late 1991. The Jaguar engineers attempted to break the emulator with offbeat software. They even dug up some ancient 400K floppies to stump the risk machine. But the RLC maintained its charade that it was a 68K computer. And when the risk machine ran software written specifically for its processor, it churned out Mandelbro fractals at dizzying speeds. The success of the RLC prototype was a real milestone on the road to risk. Until then, people didn't think it was possible, says Wayne Moretzky, who was then a Jaguar engineer. They didn't understand that the limited instruction set could do all that. Deal with the Devil As the Cognac team produced more prototypes, by 1992 they had an RLC running the Finder in a Mac 2SI box, Apple's executives were busy with another matter entirely. John Scully and his colleagues had begun negotiations regarding a joint venture with Apple's former blood enemy, International Business Machines. Ironically, one of the things that first brought Apple and IBM together was the Jaguar team's search for a risk chip. Once that back channel was opened, it turned out that Apple and IBM officers had plenty to talk about. Maybe they discussed how they hated Bill Gates. In the summer of 1992, after months of top-secret discussions, the companies made an announcement. They would work together on several projects, the most important of which would be the development, working together with Motorola, of a new microprocessor that would be the heart of new machines from Apple and IBM. The chip would be called PowerPC. It would be a risk chip. Apple people called it, with a measure of mockery, the deal of the century. Well, power, it wasn't, there was no PowerPC really. Um, power was not one of the risk architectures we looked at because it was an IBM internal architecture. <laughs> they weren't selling it to other customers? They, no. This was sort of the, the formation of the AIM alliance. So there, there was no hardware either. <laughs> you know, there was, there, there was just starting on the definition of the PowerPC architecture, which, you know, evolving power into PowerPC. It was going to be uh, about a year before first silicon of the 601. As far as Cognac was concerned, it meant at the least a retooling of its emulation scheme using a chip that literally hadn't been designed yet. Even more daunting, the team had to bring on software wizards to develop an entirely new operating system built around this vapor processor. The PowerPC itself would be a collaboration between companies with cultures so different that some doubted that anything at all could come from it. Picture Roy Cohn and Alger Hiss sharing a soldering iron. And all of this had to be completed to meet an incredibly tight deadline. January 24, 1994, the 10th anniversary of Macintosh.
Culture Club. But in one of the first meetings between Apple and IBM engineers, a telling incident occurred. The IBMers dressed in blue jeans. The Apple Corps wore ties. Each group had attempted to make the other one feel at home. And as it turned out, there was an ecumenical atmosphere at Somerset, the building in Austin, Texas, that was the design center for the PowerPC chip. Here at the Somerset Center in Austin, chip designers from IBM and Motorola collaborate with advisors from Apple Computer. You won't find company logos here. The idea is to maintain a kind of corporate neutrality so that everyone works together cooperatively instead of competitively. Somerset was the name that the employees came up with. We wanted to name the building. We didn't want to call it a design center or a lab or anything. And Somerset represents a, a name chosen by the employees because it's the area in England where King Arthur used to ring his knights together at night to work on uh, aligning the knights to go after a big quest and, and so on. So everybody thought Somerset was very representative. Good thing, too, because there was a lot of work to do. IBM's 601 chip, the first in the PowerPC series, needed almost a ground-up redesign, says Paul Nixon, whom Apple recruited from Texas Instruments to head its Somerset contingent. At the same time, engineers from three companies worked on the design for the next two chips, the more efficient 603 and the lightning-fast 604. Back in Cupertino, the Cognac and Tesseract teams were working frantically to design the computers themselves. Since the consortium creating the PowerPC chips agreed that the microprocessor would fit the bus design planned for Motorola's original RISC chip, Cognac leader Jack McHenry and crew knew some of the basic structure of the low-end computer they were building. The tricky part was keeping close track of what was happening in Austin. Any change in the PowerPC chip might have implications for Apple's machines. The PowerPC 601 arrived in Cupertino on September 3, 1992, inside a package covered with Christmas wrapping. Cognac's prototype wasn't quite ready to go, but McHenry's team pounced on the chip anyway, immediately socketing it up to a new bus card and hooking it into a Mac. On Monday, I got the card, says Gary Davidian, the team's emulation expert. Tuesday, we powered up. On Wednesday, we were trying to boot the Mac ROM. That night, we broke something, so on Thursday, we got a new card. Thursday night, we booted Mac software. And on Friday, we demoed it. Then the team got the chip into its box. On October 3rd, at approximately 5 a.m., the first prototype of a Power Macintosh using an actual 601 chip was booting the Finder. Tesser axed. I heard there was also a project called Hurricane, which became Tesseract later on. Jaguar sort of evolved. Yeah, Hurricane was one iteration of that. They had a, a team uh, sweatshirt made up. It said, Hurricane, prepare to be blown away. Uh, and <laughs> we took that as a bad sign for a project. <laughs> and then there, after Tesseract, there was uh, TNT, the, the new Tesseract or the next Tesseract or something like that, um, which we just jokingly said, you know, prepare to be blown up. <laughs> <laughs> Things were not going as smoothly with the Tesseract team, 
which Apple executives had judged the more important project. Near Christmas of 1992, the Tesseract team realized it could not possibly ship in the early 1994 timeframe. By March, Apple concluded that the project was beyond redemption, and it pulled the plug on Tesseract. It was now less than one year from Apple's planned date for shipping the PowerMax, and as McHenry notes, there was no high-end product. The whole PowerPC effort hinged on getting a replacement, fast. Apple's only hope was if Cognac's machine could somehow be modified into a more powerful, feature-laden model. We had thought about that, says McHenry, revealing a coy political acumen that comes from ten years of computer design at Apple. All along, it seems, McHenry's squad had designed its Mac so that the CPU could be expanded. With a new deadline of March 1994, the Cognac team began transforming its modest creation into the very high-end machine that stymied its rivals. The original low-end model was called Piltdown Man, or PDM for short. The high-end model was dubbed Cold Fusion. Then a mid-range version was added and codenamed Carl Sagan, perhaps in honor of the billions and billions of dollars Apple hoped to reap from it. Brady's Bunch Once the hardware issue was settled, the PowerPC focus turned to software. In effect, Apple had to fast-forward into the next century with a successor to System 7. To manage the effort, Apple tapped Philip Koch, a risk expert who had been doing research at Dartmouth College. But Koch had difficulty recruiting Apple's top engineers for his team. It was hard to get excited about building system software for a chip that was going to be in an IBM computer as well as Apple's, he says. And it was also a case of 68K chauvinism. James Gable, who moved from the Tesseract team to manage the entire PowerPC effort, was worried. The software estimations were overly optimistic. We had a prototype, but very little native code running. His fears were confirmed when Sheila Brady, a brilliant and profane engineer, was recalled in late 1992 from a sabbatical at Harvard University to beef up the PowerPC software effort. She took one look at the massive chart with various projected delivery dates and judged the deadlines as unreliable. Coach and Brady methodically gathered a team and began to resolve the key issues in the PowerPC operating system. The most important question was whether it would use the powers of the machine to integrate new features. Would it look different from System 7? Which comes first? asks John Fitch, a hardware designer on McHenry's team, by way of explanation. Should we present a high-performance computer with a high-performance interface? We decided that the transition to a new interface would be too abrupt. After all, we're building Macintoshes. Adding even one obvious new feature to the Power Macintosh interface was judged too drastic. So we ended up burying the differences, says Brady. But underneath the surface, the new OS was drastically rewritten. Gable ticks off some details. All of QuickDraw is new. The memory manager is new. QuickTime is rewritten. But on screen, 
the interface is identical to System 7. The software turned out to be a dual success. True to the intentions of the Cognac team, it ran the current Mac software at speeds comparable to Quadra's. Meanwhile, its familiar trappings cleverly concealed the fact that this operating system would one day accommodate the innovations conceived of by the now-defunct Tesseract group. Telephony, voice recognition, multimedia, and all sorts of exotic interface improvements. We began with a core of 5 to 10 software people and turned the company around, says Phil Koch. It's clearly obvious that this is going to be the future at Apple. And we were also pretty motivated to get that 6100 prototype up and running because there was this carrot that was hung out in front of us. If we got it up and running in time, we could go and demonstrate it at the Apple sales conference, which was going to be held in Hawaii. <laughs> so, you know, we got things up and running and got to go to Hawaii. <laughs> We had two boards built, originally gotten five uh, processors. In Hawaii, we got things set up the night before. I was going to give the demo the next morning to hide things. We, there was this cardboard box we put over the 6100, and the next morning we got there, tried things, and it was completely dead. <laughs> we brought spare parts for everything, so uh, Keith Cox was actually the, the person who did the logic board. He was still back in the hotel room. I called him and said, it's completely dead, bring everything. <laughs> he rushed over with all the spares and we're backstage. You know, Spindler is already talking. <laughs> and we're trying to get this thing up and running. Oh my God. And replacing everything. And we eventually did. We got it up and you know covered it up again not too long after that i had to go out and give the demo so wow first first thing i did was i wiggled the mouse i saw the cursor move I go, you know and <laughs> big sigh of relief <laughs> talk about flying without a net there yeah <laughs> we were never sure exactly what happened because eventually the board that wasn't working it was eventually working again i think it was probably just heat from having the thing covered uh we were all happy and relieved, and you know, we hung out for the rest of the week and you know, toured, toured Hawaii. <laughs> Living Proof The proof of this came when Apple began showing the PowerPC to developers. There were two sorts of tests developers were interested in. How would their current software run on the emulator? and how easy would it be to port a current application to the native code that would take advantage of the PowerPC's risk speed? The first question was answered at a developer's conference in May 1993, when software companies were invited to test their applications on the PowerPC. We offered a bottle of champagne to anyone who could break the emulator, says McHenry. At the end of the conference, not a cork had been popped. The second question was resolved fairly neatly once developers discovered that they could port their applications to PowerPC's native code with only a few days' work. This surprised even Apple. We thought we'd have zero native applications when we shipped the machine, says John Fitch. Instead, there were about 30 applications. The company expects hundreds by the end of 1994. Apple, obviously, had done something right. 
There seems to be a common thread in the development of every important Apple computer. It is invariably the engineers and not the top managers who realize what is really needed. Apple's hands-on wizards have always been able to come up with solutions before their leaders, wallowing in stock options and six-figure salaries, even understand what the problems are. The Power Macintosh is no exception. While the upper echelons at Apple struggled with boardroom coups and pink-slip distribution, Jack McHenry's team coolly saved the company. McHenry says only that he feels proud to have been associated with Apple's new flagship product. After all, he came to Apple ten years ago for the sole purpose of designing new Macintoshes. I remember the time of the Macintosh SE and the Mac II, he says. It was a time when Apple could remake itself in terms of market share. We're there again with the PowerPC. Here's some pure speculation and commentary from your host. I lived through the 68K to PowerPC transition. I was only 12 years old, but the message was loud and clear on BBSs and from README files distributed with shareware. Apple would not have survived this transition without developer tools from third parties, namely Echologic's Flashport Static Binary Translator, Think Rosetta 2, and famously MetroWorks Code Warrior. By the late 1980s, Think C, later known as Semantic C++, and earlier as Lightspeed C, was the dominant development environment for the Macintosh. Think C Engineering had already gotten the PowerPC support ball rolling when Semantic Management just told them to stop. In 1993, Semantic decided to abandon the tiny, floundering Macintosh market. And yes, the dominant programming environment was just going to die. It was a cold but easily justified business decision with dire consequences. It's as though Microsoft decided to transition Windows to ARM CPUs, but also decided, eh, we're just going to discontinue Visual Studio, Visual C++, and let someone else recreate the entire set of Windows developer tools. For a time, it looked as though third-party developers would be required to purchase and operate an IBM RS6000 PowerPC Unix workstation to do software development, an expensive and complicated proposition that, I would guess, few would have even considered. Apple's own development tools weren't ready either. We didn't have development systems. <laughs> So there were going to be these RS6000 workstations. That was going to be the development environment. And I did all my work at home. And I really did not want to have a, an RS6000 at home. The development tools group at Apple was going to work on an assembler and compilers. But things were taking a while. So eventually, I actually wrote my own assembler that ran on the Mac so that I could do development on a Mac instead of on an RS6000. It was an assembler that was actually source compatible with IBM's RS6000 assembler. It was so that I could do my development, but the final build was actually done on the RS6000. It was just a quick turnaround for me, but, but as far as everything else went, it, it, it went through the development chain that Apple was really using internally. Rich Siegel, known today for BBEdit, witnessed this disaster unfolding from the inside as a semantic employee. From the Debug Podcast, Episode 36, 
uh, it was a bumpy time for Apple and, and a lot of companies didn't have a lot of faith that Apple was going to be around. I think where it sort of fell apart with Symantec on the compiler side of things, on, on the language tools side of things, was that uh, the compiler group wanted to do PowerPC tools and corporate said no. They had what was basically an exodus. Um, yeah. Did everybody just go to Code Warrior? Almost. They lost some core people. In fact, the guy who had come up with a working design for a PowerPC code generator and said, <laughs> I have this. I'd like to finish turning this into a PowerPC product. And by the time Symantec got the clue that maybe there was something worth pursuing there, it was too late and they had a lot of catching up to do. And they tried, right? They hired, again, some really good people. Mm-hmm. But they had lost so much credibility in the community because I mean, <laughs> while they're trying to figure out what to do and they're saying no when everyone else is saying yes, the Mac developer community is all over PowerPC. What they see is that they're not getting what they need from Symantec. And so, well, here's Code Warrior over here. And maybe it was kind of rough around the edges while they were in beta, but they were doing a public beta and people were using it and getting work done with it. Yeah, and as a tools vendor, it's very hard to regain trust once you've lost it. Yeah, and it was the trust deficit that Symantec really never made up after that. This was more than just discouraging. This was an existential threat, in my opinion. PowerMax began shipping in March 1994. If developers had just opted to wait, native PowerPC support didn't arrive in Symantec C++ until June 1995. If MetroWorks Code Warrior hadn't come along, I doubt the PowerPC transition would have been such a success, or that the Macintosh would have cheated death into the late 1990s as well as it did. Other arguments against the Motorola 88K included price. Three chips meant three times the cost. CPU Shack reports 1989 prices were $500 US for the CPU, and 620 for each of the two combined cache and MMU chips. A complete system of three chips was nearly 2,000 US dollars. Gary Davidian also noted that there was barely room to fit all three chips in the RISC-LC prototype. Letters to the Editor, Macworld, August 1995. This letter revolves around what is probably an insignificant issue for most readers of Macworld, which is probably why I've taken almost a year to write it. But goat breeders are a sensitive lot, and when our Caprine friends are maligned, our hackles rise and we demand that the truth be known. I am referring to The Road to Power Macintosh, The Iconoclast, May 1994. Stephen Levy writes, In their thinking, the first thing you would do upon switching from the Mac to a new risk machine was to feed all your software to a neighborhood goat who would munch on it happily since it was garbage. As for the myth that goats will eat anything, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, they're very fussy about the condition of their food and more finicky about the cleanliness of it than any other farm animal. Unlike their bovine, porcine, and ovine cousins, goats will not eat hay that has fallen to the dirty ground or been trampled by others in the herd. The concept that goats eat garbage comes from their innate curiosity, which prompts them to nibble at non-food items as a means of investigation, similar to the actions of human infants who put things in their mouths to explore them. I'm sure Macworld readers, who are also parents, 
would not want it known that their children happily eat garbage. I am an avid reader of Macworld and look forward to its arrival as much as I do the various Capriculture publications I receive. In future, please refrain from badmouthing, even in the most trivial way, a farm animal that does not get the recognition it deserves as a productive and clean contributor to agriculture. Jackie Riley, President, Alberta Goat Breeders Association, Kingman, Alberta, Canada. You know, Spindler, we had a meeting with him once. I don't think he really understood what we were doing or sort of went off onto this tangent about how much money Hewlett Packard makes on selling toner cartridges. And <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, and, uh, 